Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to recap the series that we've just completed on gender. And joining me to do that, we have a whole host of Two Cities contributors. We have Amber Bowen, Grace Emmett, Grace Sangalang Ng, Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams. And joining us for the first time is our newest contributor to the Two Cities team, Jennifer Guo, who is a PhD student at Notre Dame in New Testament. Welcome to the team, Jen. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. All right. So how about we talk about some highlights from the series, some connections and themes that we noticed across the episodes, and e- even some reactions that we've had? I think for me, one of the highlights has been, as we've been going through this series, I've also been teaching in the pastoral epistles. And of course, as a guy teaching in the pastoral epistles, everyone expects you to get to 1 Timothy 2 and generally mansplain on on these things. Uh, But actually being able to refer people to the episodes that we've recorded, uh, especially Cynthia uh, Westfall's episode, thinking about gender in 1 Timothy, and also uh, Beverly Roberts Cabenta's episode. Romans uh, has been really useful, not just for me, but for my students. Yeah, I would say the ability to dialogue with and hear from amazing female scholars, um, even aside from the gender topic, which was very enlightening, and we all learned a lot and were challenged and inspired in different ways. Um, but I think just being able to see the kind of caliber scholarship that's going on from women um, in the academy scholarship that's really aimed at building up the church, aimed at helping us to love scripture more deeply and, um, and seeing how they bring their expertise to the table. For me personally, as a woman scholar, that was very inspiring and encouraging. I think it's also been fun, the kind of range of perspectives that we've had in this series, because I think, yeah, the different contributors we've had would come at this issue from a range of different perspectives and I love that we have that diversity and are kind of just trying to take one stand on a particular passage it's cool to kind of hear a range of perspectives on that and also to think about how gender intersects with other things like race which we've covered in a couple of episodes so it's been a lot that's happened in this series which has been cool. Yeah the diversity of perspectives I thought was really the strength of this series Um, Also, because even on our team, we represent a diversity of perspectives. Um, We have some softer complementarians, we have other egalitarians. And so we tried to bring in different voices, people who land on these issues differently. And so in this dialogue, it's not that everything that everybody said, everybody agrees with or would adopt that as their own personal position or stance on the matter. But it was just so rich to hear the variety of ways of reading and ways of thinking about things and challenging. And I think even in many ways, um, strengthening of, of our own convictions on, on different issues too. That's a great point, Amber. And it, it's connected to one of the things that was most striking to me from this series. Um, when Michelle Lee Barnwell said that one of her goals for her book was to help complementarians be better complementarians and egalitarians be better egalitarians. And that line really stuck with me um, because I think that um, at the extremes of both of those camps, there are probably you know, views and practices that even in their own camp would be considered you know, either unbiblical or not good, but that towards the middle where they meet, they can be virtually indistinguishable. And I think that sometimes we focus so much on the divisive aspects that we kind of forget, well, you know, both camps are trying to be faithful, 
And within each camp, there are ways where you can be better and more faithful. So that line was something that really stuck out to me. I think for me, it's been uh, really interesting to see how a lot of these issues aren't based on, you know, one particular passage or, you know, one person's reading of scripture, but it's also informed by a whole host of other things, uh, you know, racial issues, um, but also just kind of uh, evangelical subculture or, you know, broader cultural movements that have affected various readings of scripture. And I, I just found that really interesting to see, you know, Kristen Cobes uh episode, Beth Allison Barr's episode, like that culture is really defining some of these uh, reading practices. One of the things that was brought up in particularly Kristen Cubs Dumais episode and the great sex rescue episode was that complementarian and um, other conservative perspectives on gender and sexuality are not really biblical in any meaningful sense of the term. Uh, and I put, I'm putting biblical in um, quotation marks here. There's so much that we saw in both those episodes where evangelical sex manuals and uh, views on gender were just so much drawing from, you know, early 20th century stereotypes about men and what men and women should be like. Um, and these stereotypes, you know, um, were created in tandem with this kind of feedback loop between cultural stereotypes in, in the West, as well as you know, evangelical stereotypes kind of like feeding back into each other. And so with Chris, with Chris and Cobb's Dumais episode, we see that certain ideals about masculinity, you know, epitomized in someone like John Wayne, then become the model for masculinity. Or with the great sex rescue episode, Sheila noted that uh, a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of wild myths and silly beliefs about sexuality out there that um, are really just, you know, uniquely very much ours. They're very much, um, you know, American or uh, Western and modern. Um, and yet, complementarians, uh, or really conservative complementarians, uh, like to believe that they're being uniquely biblical over egalitarians who are submitting to culture or who are, you know, just being thrown around with every wind of, of new doctrine and new you know, like, quote-unquote, woke orthodoxy or whatever. But I really think those two episodes kind of pulled the rug out from uh, under that view uh, that somehow, you know, modern expressions of complementarian are, you know, actually, you know, reflecting this first-century ideal of masculinity and femininity when really it's actually a rhetorical projection of a maybe mid-20th century ideal back onto... Uh, this first century ancient text, uh, which then legitimates uh, the mid 20th century ideal. I just really liked how those two episodes in particular really exposed the cultural contingency of a lot of conservative complementarianism. Yeah, and actually to go along with what Logan was saying, I think it really was interesting and eye-opening to see all the cultural constructs that we approach scripture with, or you know, that the evangelical subculture approaches scripture with. And um, even just thinking about the whiteness and biblical scholarship episode with Dr. Tupamahu, how important it is to understand that everyone reading scripture is seeing it in our own lens, in a specific time and a specific place and a specific culture, and how we need to bring awareness to that 
um, instead of just saying like what Logan said, something is quote un- like quote unquote biblical. So yeah, I think um, just having our the need for self reflection in understanding where we're coming from, I think is really, really important when we come to study scripture. Yeah, I think that's great, Grace. And I think the, you know, the nature of the series, if if you look across the episodes, it might appear like we took a couple of breaks, like you mentioned the Tupamahu episode when we talked about whiteness and biblical scholarship or the critical race uh, theory uh, episode, or even the African-American readings of Paul episode. It might look like we took some breaks uh, to talk about race, but actually this is it's all part of the same conversation. Uh, and we can really see that, I think, come together very nicely, not only in looking at each episode where issues of gender do arise, but um, specifically when we get to Christian in Koba's Dumais episode and see this uh, this issue of masculinity in, in particular uh, from this kind of white evangelical American, you know, sort of lens. Yeah, and I, th- I think even the critical theory episode really ties well into these discussions, even though it's kind of a more, or there were three episodes, I think there's, they're a bit more meta, but we had those episodes partially because of, you know, current reactions uh, against critical theory, mostly by um, white men. And I just don't think that's a coincidence that it's usually white men who are um, afraid of this. And in particular, because one of the things that, that CRT or CT critical theory is going to do um, is to analyze and critique how uh, patriarchy re-legitimates itself through structures uh, and through systems. This is coupled with critiques of uh, people who engage in critical theory and critique patriarchy you know, critiques of those people as uh, somehow effeminate or uh, too empathetic, uh, which is something that we saw earlier this week. So I, I think that the critical theory one perfectly wraps into all these discussions. Beth Allison Barr had also made an observation that shows really well the connection between um, the gender issue and the race issue. Uh, she, when she was talking about American history, she made this comment that with the civil rights movement, what happened was when they couldn't oppress Black people anymore, they oppressed women. And I think that shows really well how these two issues are very much connected and have the same root. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things for me is that coming to this as a non-white man, Asian, you can't really tell that by my name, but also as a transracial adoptee and someone who does not live in North America, so so many of these episodes, as we're going going through the episode, I'm like, okay, I get the argument, but then as we're interviewing other people who've written these books and as other team members have shared stories, I, I got so much more of why these you know evangelical sex manuals or why these theological positions have been held because of the cultural embedding of of them, which which to be quite frank, I had I, I'd understood the theology beforehand. But I had no idea of the cultural background, which it goes with. And I think this really highlights for us that these elements are so heavily culturally embedded uh, and so heavily race embedded. I think when we, when we had that chat about preaching and gender to start off, it was the second episode, I think, in the series after the Grace Evans episode on polar masculinity. Uh, we had this conversation, which I remember thinking, surely this is, you know, this is normal, you know, thinking about preaching and gender from a, a multicultural background. And then as we got deeper in, I went, oh, this, this might be normal outside of North America, or it might be normal in my circles, uh, but wow. Yeah, Chris, um, I'm just reflecting 
about that episode as well about preaching and gender. And um, just thinking about my background, and I come from you know a more conservative background, and you know through these eighteen episodes, just really learning so much and expanding my mind, and just seeing examples of women. Um, as Amber said, doing awesome scholarship and just seeing the possibilities uh, for women to use their giftings in so many different ways, I think has been, yeah, for me, just so refreshing. And uh, it's just been such a great opportunity for me to kind of look outside of my bubble um, to see the possibilities. So yeah, I've really enjoyed this series. Yeah, I found that this series was really interesting for, for opposite reasons of Chris is that I felt like my entire childhood was being uh, dragged through the mud uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a positive way. But it felt like every episode I was like, wait, what? That wasn't normal. Uh, <laughs> or and especially I mean, I had read I wasn't on the Jesus and John Wayne episode, but I had I bought the book and, and read it. And it was like each chapter, I was like, I wonder if they're going to talk about this thing that I experienced in my, at my church or my childhood. I was like, oh, yes. Oh, great. Cool. I've, that person spoke at my church. Oh, that, that person spoke at my church. And so it was just, it was so fascinating. I mean, and then other episodes as well, it was like, oh, I've heard that on a Sunday. I've heard, I've heard that in youth group. So it was just really fascinating to see all of these issues kind of bringing up childhood trauma now. Um, but like, it was teaching me about things that I hadn't really thought about in a long time. And I think it was these kind of series, these kind of conversations are are well worth having more than just, you know, trying to find the right answer. Like, here's the best way of preaching these texts or reading whatever. But it's it's about starting that conversation that, you know, people like myself, who's white male, aren't, aren't forced to have on a daily basis, aren't forced to reckon with gender or whiteness. And it's just a great uh, this series and, and other series as well has just been eye-opening, but also really challenging. I've been really appreciative of all these uh, conversations that are happening. happening. I would say my experience was very similar in, in many regards because we had a lot of conversations where we were sort of forced to face our childhood and the way that we were raised, the way that we were taught. Um, and people who are doing serious work like Dume and Beth Allison Barr and others looking at these, these ideals and in many ways, deconstructing them, calling them into question um, and picking them apart, showing how they are actually more culturally contingent than they are biblically rooted and those sorts of things. And I know that there were many times, particularly when I was reading Jesus and John Wayne, where I would have to put it down and go for a walk and process through things because it's very um, upending when you're talking about your, your world and your context and the thing that seems so familiar to you, but then yet it seems so foreign at the same time. And I think that process of people refer to it as deconstruction a lot, um, where people are questioning these, these things that they were told, that's an important one. And it's important not just as an end in and of itself. It's important in the sense of being able to think through these things, to do it in community with one another, which I, I love about that aspect of our series where we were thinking together and we were bringing in different voices, right? And we're thinking about these assumptions and we're doing it in light of scripture. And, but I think really it's to be for the purpose of us rethinking, um, of us being creative and not just casting away, but repairing um, and imagining new possibilities and ways of living faithfully. And so we did a lot of critique 
throughout this series. Um, we talked about a lot of really bad ideas and really harmful, toxic things. Um, and we talked about tools that are really helpful for us in critiquing, especially things like critical race theory and the different types of historical analyses that are going on as it pertains to gender. Um, and I think really what I have appreciated about each of the episodes is that there has been hope in each one, that it's done for the purpose of building up the church. And it's done for the purpose of now this work that we have of thinking better. I think that this should be just the beginning of, of a conversation. Something I found interesting about this series is hearing I think all of your reflections and the fact that we we talked about this diversity within the series but also the diversity within our team and particularly yeah some of this stuff that's been quite embedded in evangelicalism and having grown up in sort of British evangelicalism and seeing sort of I guess I feel like I've had a watered down version of a lot of this it's been really fascinating for me kind of seeing what's made its way through to my church context growing up and some of the stuff that we definitely just did not touch with a barge pole. <laughs> and also ways that we kind of made that more specific in a British culture, I guess. And then hearing from you all about, well, those of you that are in a North American context, kind of where that's been more embedded. And I think particularly I had a lot of reflections on the conversations around purity culture, which came up in uh, the Jesus and John Wayne episode and the Great Sex Rescue episode, where I can just remember sort of taking nuggets from different books that never our church is kind of embracing it in quite the same way and so that's just been really interesting for me to sort of see that dilution I guess and the way it's manifested specifically in a British context uh, and kind of pairing that with your reflections as well um, so that's just been I don't know I don't know if I want to say that's been fun it's been quite kind of thought-provoking but um, yeah it has been interesting for sure. It's like you got the squash and we all everyone else got the concentrate. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think that was it. <laughs> wow, great British reference, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. I'm here. I'm here. Squash is just juice, everyone. <laughs> I feel I feel like sometimes we got the Waitrose and everyone else got the uh Costco. Costco's great. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, but 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 the quantity size. Yeah, Waitrose is all about smaller mm. amounts and high quality. Although I don't know if all the stuff we had was quality just because it was in less quantity. <laughs> We've just more selective, uh, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, more selective. I think one of the things that I appreciated as well was then how we were able to link or how the conversations were, were linked with other areas which we wouldn't necessarily think about, such as uh, Madison Pierce's episode on gender and the Trinity. Uh, you know, often it is brought up as a secondary argument uh, to support or even at, sometimes as a primary argument for support views on gender. Uh, but then thinking deeply about what the implications of uh, Trinitarian arguments for these sort of things, should they even be deployed at all, uh, I think was actually really helpful uh, to be able to think about that externally. Yeah, it was another example that we, we talked about before, realizing how many of our cultural tropes are making their way into our understandings of gender that we then call biblical. And even those tropes making their way into our understanding of the Trinity. Um, and essentially starting with a particular um, kind of relationship that you want to claim for um, men and women, uh, as Dr. Pierce said, and then kind of like backing that into the Trinity as a way of finding another example of that type of relationship. And so I, I thought that that was, that was very interesting how she looked at different passages, I thought, from a very even-handed perspective and was very attentive to, okay, 
how much of this is cultural and what is going on here and what does the text actually let us say and what will it not let us say? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how um, critical theory can actually really help us analyze <laughs> um, those uh, kinds of moves. You know, I mean, in particular, like when you really, really care about a specific cultural issue, just make it internal to the Trinity. And then, you know, you can basically hang anyone for heresy who disagrees with your, uh, you know, cultural um, hobby horse, right? So the moment that people start denying complementarianism, uh, you say, oh, actually, complementarianism is basically about the Trinity, right? So really, a denial of complementarianism is actually a denial of the Trinity, right? And this is, this is of course, a ridiculous power move, right? It's a power grab. And it's hilarious that, you know, in 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 making these accusations that these people are being heretical, they're just editing the doctrine of the Trinity to suit their own cultural agenda. Um, and I'll never forget, you know, I heard Wayne Grudem uh, once say, you know, he, he, he laid out this, you know, argument for EFS and subordination of the sun. And then he said, because these texts say these things, anyone who disagrees with me denies inerrancy, right? And not necessarily that I care about, you know, like, living up to Wayne Grudem's standards of inerrancy. Uh, but I'm more interested in the fact that that's, uh, you know, an absurd power play, right? Um, it's just, uh, you know, you, you basically, you can make any, you, know, you put the stakes, make the stakes really high so that anyone who disagrees with your hobby horse, uh, you can then excommunicate them as a heretic and you can use your audience. You know, these people have massive audiences and they can just say that anyone is a heretic and you know denies Trinity and denies inerrancy because they don't like my interpretation of X or Y, um, and it has massive ramifications for those people. And it's it's all silly. Don't edit the Trinity to you know suit your own agenda. Well, it's a power play, and then it it's also manipulative too. In so far as you, you can you can really play on people's um, sense of spiritual well, well-being, right? Like you, you're no longer in the truth. You're no longer biblically faithful. It can be a form of spiritual abuse when you start using those kinds of arguments. And, and critical, the critical race theory episode was so powerful because it took these basic talking points, um, or objections to critical race theory or critical theory as a method. And we kind of deconstructed those objections. You know, the objections are going to be like, Oh, it's it's relativist. They don't believe in absolute truth. And you're like, well, actually, no, <laughs> they do believe in absolute truth. They are, they do believe in in objective reality. You know, oh, it's just rooted in Marxism. Well, not necessarily. And what do you exactly mean by that? Those sorts of things. But it can become so easy for people to just with a wave of a hand dismiss a lot of these things by saying, if you don't believe this, then you don't believe in inerrancy. Or if you ascribe to this, then it means you don't believe in absolute truth, or it means that you are a Marxist or, or whatever. And, and these kinds of power moves, uh, they are the types of things that these methods like critical race theory and critical theory really deconstruct. So it does make sense, as you were saying earlier, Logan, that there's going to be an allergic reaction to them. Um, and so that's one of the things we've tried to do throughout this series is really look at what those not just what these claims are, but what also is the nature of the reactions against them. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I think there's just, just briefly, there's this, it often can seem really abstract, but for a lot of people, those kinds of moves will have serious practical ramifications, right? So if you have a, a married woman, for example, who is a devoted Trinitarian, right? <laughs> um, and then is, you know, in a church where the pastor 
you know, emphasizes um, making sure you're always, you know, sexually gratifying your husband in any and all contexts. Uh, and that's, you know, how they believe that that's how this pastor is saying complementarianism must be expressed and, you know, submission must be expressed. And then you connect complementarianism to the Trinity. Uh, then you get this absurd situation, which is not really unfathomable, where, uh, you know, enduring marital rape is connected to your doctrine of the Trinity. And resisting marital rape would be akin to denying the Trinity. These kinds of conflations between Trinity and complementarianism and whatever um, can become really dangerous for a lot of people, especially women in a lot of contexts. What I found really shocking was just that how easily these ideas spread, you know, through, you know, Jesus and John Wayne just talking about, you know, James Dobson's email list or his, his mailing list. And it's like that, it, that became how I, ideas were spread. That's how people were got elected. That's how, you know, elections were decided by James Dobson's mailing list. And, you know, with a lot of these, you know, bigger names in, in theology and biblical studies, it's just, I think it's really dangerous of how much influence we can, our ideas can have. And, you know, these kind of, uh, like you were saying, Logan and Amber, just, you know, ideas about the Trinity expressed, you know, some academic context might allow for people's marriages to suffer, uh, and especially women in those marriages to suffer. And I just think it's just really important that these, these conversations just continue to be very, very important. And I'm just really glad that we get, we get to uh, be a part of it. Yeah, Brandon and, and Logan, I think the, the weaponization of gender rhetoric uh, is so insi insidious in our culture. Um, just the way that we have ended up uh, utilizing uh, gender and sexuality to divide uh, and, and actively to, to ostracize, uh, to, to push people into our groups is so, just so dangerous. Um, I mean, down here in Melbourne, we've had several high-profile cases of women being murdered in parks. Um, and I heard recently there was uh, a murder in London as well, uh, where the, the argument uh, sort of goes that, well, because they weren't upholding this normal sort of gender, gendered stereotype, therefore they were yeah, at fault. Um, things like this and you get responses on twitter like not all men and and all of these sort of uh, vitriolic divisions between between groups uh, and and actually we saw a little bit of that with grace emmett's episode i remember uh seeing uh twitter uh twitter bombing or twitter arguments happening uh all over the shop with that episode um and actually with several of them after that as well we're getting reposted into into groups who, which exist pretty much explicitly to troll uh, positions that people don't agree with. Um, Grace, I'm, I'm interested, uh, what, what's been your experience of uh, having been, I guess, our guest on that episode before joining the team uh, and then the fallout or what's happened since then? Yeah, it was interesting sort of processing some of the reactions on social media to my work and um, just thinking about the different categories that they sort of fell into. Because um, there were some that sort of seemed to be quite defensive of Paul, as if I was doing something to attack Paul, which is interesting, the, the sort of the need to want to defend him, I kind of admits what I'm saying. And being particularly sort of curious about the methodology I was using and really interrogating that. And I do wonder to what extent anxiety about talking about Paul's masculinity reflects anxiety about masculinity generally, in a sense that Paul's masculinity is kind of intertwined with modern masculinity. 
Um, and obviously, uh, Kristen Coves de May sort of <laughs> looked at that in her episode. Um, so that's been interesting for me, just thinking about why people react in the way they do and why they feel so strongly about maintaining a particular version of Paul. But I, I guess overall, for me, it just illustrates how important doing this sort of work is and why it matters, uh, because it does spark such strong reactions. And I think we see that or have seen that kind of more broadly in society just in the last week. We mentioned the tragic murder already of Sarah Everard um, in London this week. In response, lots of women have been sharing their own stories of feeling unsafe, walking about. And it's almost been a kind of another wave of Me Too, really. It's sort of been quite powerful on social media. And um, in response to that, we've had the sort of uh, inevitable kind of hashtag not all men pushback. And um, it's just sad to see because we, we know that it's not all men. We know that not all men are predatory. But it's so important to have conversations about why masculinity can foster these sorts of toxic behaviours. Uh, and if we don't talk about it, then we can't kind of start to change that. We can't name violence against women as a gendered phenomenon. Then we've got not much hope of resolving it, really. Uh, and we're leaving the onus of responsibility on women keeping themselves safe rather than thinking about how do we change patterns of male violence. So, I mean, that's sort of worlds away from the stuff that I'm working with, Paul. But actually, I think it just reactions to my work. It kind of remind me why this stuff is important and how that connects into broader discourses about gender. And it's just been, I think, brought up afresh this week. I think one thing that's interesting being an American in Britain is that, you know, England is, you know, shook right now over the death of one woman, which is tragic and terrible. I can't help but think of how many women die all over the world and, you know, in America, just from gun violence and, and other types of violence and just how women are murdered and killed uh, and suffer violence from the hands of men uh, that don't have stories told, that don't have their stories known by a global audience. I think this is, again, why these conversations uh, are so important and then why we need to keep having them. And even if they are uncomfortable and, you know, even if they all, they do ruffle some feathers, push some buttons and make for some very awful social media engagements, they're still worth having. And so, Grace, I, I saw that thread and that, that was terrible. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm so uh, proud that you were able to still publish this and, and still kind of suffer through that. I think that just is a testimony to not only your character and scholarship, but just um, all, all the good work that you're doing. So keep it up. And speaking of the not all men theme, really in the Great Sex Rescue episode, Sheila talked about the issue of lust. And Logan, I thought you made a really insightful point about how growing up, you're as, as a young boy, you're given these texts, you know, like every man's battle. And you're told in this book that you just have this uncontrollable lust as a man. Um, and it's just the battle that you're always going to have. And this is who you are and how your question was, how much of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy that you then like live into that identity. Um, and so there's a sense in which you've made it every man's battle and you've made it much more of a battle uh, because you have given that trope and, and that way of seeing themselves. And so I think she, her encouragement really was to, to stop that assumption, to stop the assumption that it's just men that struggle with lust and not women. And also the assumption that every man has this uncontrollable lust as well. Thinking more broadly, a lot of the stuff we've talked about, especially with Kristen and Sheila's episodes, how much um, a lot of the practices that 
or a lot a lot of um, views and practices of a lot of Christians in the West that we've seen in their research that they've done uh, contribute uh, to these kinds of events. And in particular, um, I think of Sheila's research that outlines how, uh, or at least she mentioned, she didn't mention exactly what the stats were, but she mentioned that she had done research correlating, uh, you know, this view that um, men are, you know, horribly lust, lust-filled creatures and can't control themselves. And I just can't help but think that it, there's no way it's, there's no way that kind of culture is creating a safe environment for women when you make men into the lustful monsters that you continually tell them not to be and that they become that precisely by you telling them all their lives that they're monsters, they can't control themselves, and unless they have a wife, you know, they'll never be able to control their desires. And in so doing, that these you know, people never learn to interact with women in normal ways. Uh, they never learn um, how to control their desires because they're told that these desires are uncontrollable and the only way to control them is to get a wife. And I just can't help but think that it's the, that I'm, I'm not saying that necessarily this event or this, uh, the murder of Sarah Everard was a result of these kinds of structures, but I can't help but think that there's no way that those kinds of practices and those kinds of teachings help the situation, right? Like, if anything, that creates a circumstance where men are more dangerous to women. Um, and especially when you teach them as well that men are just wired to be warriors and to, you know, in the words of Doug Wilson, to conquer and colonize women sexually. Um, and that that's what they're made for. And that if they, if they don't have that, then they're less than a man, right? Like there's no way that these kinds of teachings create a world that is safe for women. Like both women that are, you know, like married to their spouses, like it creates dangerous marriages, it creates different relationships. And it also, I can't help but think, I have no, I have no data to show this, but I can't help but think that it also, you know, puts anonymous women in danger because when you create you know, when you, when you create the monsters that you uh, warn men not to become and tell them that their desires are uncontrollable, that they can't fix them, uh, and that they should be ashamed about them so that they should never talk about them, then, you know, th this creates a, a, a horrible set of circumstances for sexually repressed people. And I use that in the non-ironic way, like seriously sexually repressed people um, that um, don't know how to control themselves and um, don't think that it's possible to. I think I think this is one of the things that comes up a lot of the time and comes back to your point, Brandon, about uh, a lot of these things happen quite regularly, but it it's, seems so much more shocking in, in England or in Australia when these things happen because we don't, it's not intertwined with things like gun violence. Um, so the, the Brianna Taylor shooting, the debate there wasn't about a woman getting shot, but it was about whether or not firearms should have been involved. It's like the, the, the question of female uh, victims there is actually overshadowed by the, by the question of gun violence. Certainly he, uh, here in Australia, here in Melbourne, we've had a couple of murders recently of women uh, walking across parks at night quite close to, to where we live. And a lot of the time, the discourse then turns to what was she doing at, out 
at a park on her own or why was she walking alone and it, it taps into this uh this sort of general cultural discourse and this isn't discourse from christians this is discourse from the general news media from politicians which who are tapping into this idea of the ideal family and the idea of the you know the women should be at home and things like this uh but it's one of the things that strikes me there, and it struck me when we were talking about uh, how these narratives are co-opted in society, is that these are things which have been generated not just by the church, but uh, the church is certainly complicit in it, but especially by the fact that we have narratives that are decontextualized from the, the area that they're, that they're writing into. So uh, people can pick up a Bible uh, and read uh, Paul's, Paul's writing to 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 Timothy that women should learn in quietness and submission and in the home and tear that from its context of talking to a church or tear that from its context of talking specifically to the church in Ephesus uh, where you've got highly contextual things going on and instead use that as a soundbite to leverage power. And, and it, it is always power uh, in these other things. And so I, I know some people will, be quite frustrated that uh, Christianity is used in this way. But in some ways, I think some of the Christian practices that we've had in the past are actually complicit in setting up the culture uh, that we have. We're all in a Western post-Christendom culture. And so uh, we have this cultural narrative, which is set up by uh, the biblical narrative, uh, but set up by uses of the Bible, interpretations of the Bible. Uh, but it's largely unmoored and adrift from its anchor. And so therefore we have this situation where the, the cultural assets or the narrative assets of, of how Paul argues about masculinity, how Paul argues about femininity can be used as weapons uh, divorced from context. What comes to mind is um, our conversation with uh, Kristen Dumay and how she said that a lot of these teachings um, came because evangelical leaders wanted to control out of a rhetoric of fear and how like a lot of times these kinds of reactions come from that fear um the fear of the other and the necessity to uh just be in relationship with others i remember she said that as well as dr tubama who said that as well um because when we actually interact with people who have different viewpoints from us that's when um, like we're no longer threatened by them because we actually can share a dialogue. Yeah, Grace. And I really resonate with that nature of uh, if we're in discussion about these things, uh, it sort of diffuses some of the tension. But I think that re really requires us to be in good faith discussion uh, because quite often uh, the responses we see um, on Facebook and Twitter uh, such as um, the, the summaries that I saw Danny Burke posting, summaries of uh, the critical race theory, um, which you can't see in, in scare quotes that I'm doing here. Uh, but um, I, I think some of these posts weren't uh, taken in the, in the nature of a, a discourse, but they were taken in the nature of a characterization or a, a, a short summary that can be used to argue from. You know, in their in their briefness, in their shortness, they left key elements out, and they were less than charitable. And frankly, you know, when when it comes down to it, they were quite inaccurate. 
And then they're, they're able to be weaponized and deployed to reinforce tribalism, to reinforce our group distinctions, and also to mobilize uh, your own in-group, um, so to mobilize your tribe around yourself. And so I, I, I just don't think that these are actually discourse. They're uh, pithy sound bites, which might go well on Twitter in 160 characters, uh, but they do, they do very little to actually stimulate a discussion. I think all of us agree here, and we can all confirm that uh, we kind of side with Scott on this one, uh, and uh, by implication also Matt Arba, in saying that we, we don't think that Denny Burke's this, uh, summaries were accurate. Um, although I will uh, note that he uh, made an update to the post and said, uh, you know, people have stated that this is inaccurate. Um, I didn't mean to be, but go listen to the podcast yourself. Uh, one of the excuses he made was, I didn't want to give a detailed accounting. Um, they were just summaries. But of course, our qualm is that actually they were incorrect summaries. I think, though, this, this indicates a kind of larger issue that the summary, although it's not explicitly stated, I mean, I'm deeply suspicious that the summary is there to kind of be like a gotcha, right? It's a, it's a reductionist summary that makes it completely unpalatable to the kind of people who read Denny's blog. Um, and, and, but he can portray himself, right? He can win social credibility. He can win cultural capital by saying, oh, look, I'm trying to do fair dialogue here where I'm just describing their view, right? And which is, which is a part of my interest in actually dialoguing. Personally, as much as he might believe that about himself or portray that to others, I don't think that him or people like him are actually interested in dialoguing. They're not interested in learning. They're interested in making gotcha comments, right? Like if you ever try to engage any of these dudes, you know, Neil Shenvey, Denny Burke, whatever on Twitter, they're, they're never taking a posture of, um, you know, what do you think about this? Can you tell me more? Whatever. It's always like, it's always, if there's a question, it's setting you up for some kind of gotcha. Um, or it's some kind of overconfident pronouncement about, you know, what the woke people believe or what, you know, CRT people believe or blah, 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 which ends up being reductionistic. Um, and I think, of course, this ties into, um, you know, gendered perceptions of uh, uh, perceptions of masculinity, where the man has to be, you know, hyper assertive and confident and, uh, you know, needs to you know, teach sound doctrine. And, but what this means to these people is that, you know, they, they don't need to bother actually dialoguing with people in, in actually good faith. Uh, yeah, I think we can just lay that one to rest and just accept that it's not, it's not really possible um, or, or fruitful or worth our time to end up dialoguing with someone like Denny if he's not going to start off on the right foot. And then even when he's called out for it, just to be like, no, nah, I didn't actually do that. But he did recommend our podcast to thousands and thousands of people. Um, and for that, I'm grateful. One of the things that, that I think with this entire situation that we find ourselves in is that uh, platforms like Twitter and even Facebook to some degree, they promote discourse, which isn't true dialogue, as, as we've said, but it, they promote discourse, which is in-group focus. So it's focused towards your own group and therefore you can leverage uh, the short uh, word count, the, the pithy little statements on Facebook comment threads, which don't have enough room to give any context. And so actually all the context is riding on the fact that people trust you and trust your brand and trust your identity. 
And because, and that's usually because they share your same social group. Uh, and this is where one of the, one of the areas uh, where we saw this, not just in this series, but we saw it actually in our politics series as well, as we're talking about misinformation of, of um, fake news and false information with Rachel Whiteman, uh, or we're talking about the, the nature of uh, political discourse over Twitter um, and how social groups are formed. And I'm reminded uh, when we're talking to, um, uh, to Chris and Cobas DeMay about the nature of how, how people uh, move between social groups. And it's, it's generally by um, being friends with someone on a, in a personal level, not by being interaction between groups uh, because the tribe that if you have two tribes coming together, you know, uh, it's two tribes go to war. It's not two tribes come down to sit down for a nice tasty stew. Um, unless that is the stew of their enemies. But, it, it, but it's, it's it, part of the reason why we need to keep having these discussions is because they provide material that we can, we can engage in proper dialogue and proper discourse with people over time, uh, that we can sit down and talk one-to-one or in small groups with people. Uh, and that's actually been uh, one of the things that has been fed back to me is uh, a friend of mine, has um, been listening along to the to the podcast through uh, some through some of the small groups he's been part of, um, and and that he leads. He's a minister here in Melbourne. Uh, so he said in um, in one of one of our chats recently, he said said even the the pro Trump anti woke members of his, of his group instinctively understood and agreed uh, with Kristen Kobe's Demay's argument. And it was one of those times when you can see see scales fall from people's eyes. And I think that's actually a great part of what we can do and what we are doing in these podcast series. Well, it's been really great to reflect on this series and to recap uh, some of what we've been able to do and discuss over the last couple of months. And when this episode airs, it'll be March 17th, which is almost uh, it's a, almost a year to the day of when we started this podcast, March 18th uh, of 2020, right as lockdown was beginning, uh, we started this podcast. So uh, this has been a great discussion, not just to sort of recap the series, but, e- but even just to kind of uh, cap that our first year of podcasting. Yeah, we're really excited about the series that we have planned for this coming year, particularly the next one is on theology and art. And we have some really great interviews, uh, one with Dr. Esther Meek, who's a philosophy professor at Geneva College, another with Makoto Fujimura, who um, is a wonderful artist and author of a new book from Yale University Press on art and faith. Then we have Another episode with Dr. Matthew Mullins, who is going to talk to us about the Bible, reading scripture as literature, and then learning to enjoy scripture. And then Dr. Gregory Thornberry is going to join us to talk about art and cultural engagement, particularly Larry Norman, the um, Christian music artist, one of the very first um, as a great example of cultural engagement. And then we're going to talk with Dr. Cutter Calloway about the upcoming Oscar nominations. Yeah, so we're really excited to share this series with our listeners and to continue this conversation. And as we've been doing this podcast for uh, over a year now, or almost a year now, uh, and we've been uh, been a blog for a lot longer than that, you know, we're always looking for fresh suggestions on what kind of conversations we should be having, people we should interview. So if you're listening to this and you have a great suggestion or you have someone you just you just really want to hear, you're dying to hear them, uh, send us an email, uh, go on our website, contact us, 
find us on Twitter, on, on Instagram, and just let us know who you want to hear from, and we'll do our best to accommodate your suggestions. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.